Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we're back at it again after a few episodes where you were interviewing someone and I was interviewing someone. We get to talk again. And I'm excited about today's topic because clients don't value our services and we get to explore why. Yeah, no, this is such an important conversation because it really starts with us. It starts with the way that we perceive our services and how we communicate that to the client. So there's a lot of takeaways, I think, uh, in this in this episode. Excited for the conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's highly applicable, highly relevant, and you know, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the in the in the answer to why some of the external forces. It has sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with your client or with you, but there are external pricing pressures that you know that that do come into play. Absolutely. So there are. Um, I, I want to start by saying first reason why we sell the wrong product. Um, and, I, and I'm using kind of product in air quotes here because I know we're a service-based company. You might say, Joe, I don't sell products. This isn't relevant to me. But product is is a general term. It doesn't mean a widget or a gadget. It just mean that, means that thing of value that somebody's willing to exchange for money. And that thing of value that somebody's willing to exchange for money is not, I think we all get this, listeners, is not your time. But it was so funny because I, I was um, in Italy at Expensicon this past week, and there was a very large, very successful firm, but not a CPA firm that had fallen into the hourly trap or had to dig their way out of that hole over years like big CPA firms have to do. This was a standalone client accounting services practice, very successful, highly innovative, modern, automated, automated being the key word, that still couldn't break out of the, uh, of the hourly rate, couldn't figure out how to get out of the trap. So they're still selling this product called My Hour. And of course, since they're automated, their profits are going down. Their revenues are going down as they modernize. So it, it is a trap. If we think that we as an industry have moved farther away from it than we have, we're deluding ourselves. It still exists. It's still, unfortunately, very prevalent. But here's the catch, Heather, is people... If somebody gets in here, this is the biggest mistake people make is they jump from trap to trap. They jump from the trap of, I get it, I've heard and I've adjusted, I'm not supposed to sell my time. I'm penalizing myself with my own efficiencies. It's open-ended for the client, it's harder to sell, it's harder to manage, it's harder to bill. And I get the whole argument, Joe. You might even get the argument about, you know, that I make that time is not valuable. Time can't be managed. We've talked about that on a previous episode because to say I could manage time would be like to say I could manage space time. Time and space are equated to being the same thing. And it, last time I checked, the the only one purported to be able to manage the universe is God. So we're not God. We can't manage time. All we can do is manage the way that we manage tasks within the constraints of time. And that's a previous episode. Go enjoy it. Even if you get philosophically that your time is not valuable. Only your capacity, your effort, your attention as exercised within the constraints of time. We still fall into the trap of billing by effort. 
because the hourly measurement was intended to be a measurement of effort. It never was a good one. It was always a subjective and inaccurate one, but it was intended to be a measurement of, of effort. So all we did in flat fee billing is we just changed the metric of our effort from an hour of time passing to how much energy we exert, attention we exert, and cost we incur in order to produce a result. And then we take that, we put the desired margin over the top of it three times or whatever, and we dictate that price to the customer. But, and then we wonder why, why they're not buying or why they're pushing back because they don't want to buy your time and they don't want to buy your effort. They don't want either of those products. We're selling the wrong product. That's like a manufacturer saying, you know, I want you to buy my widget, but what I want you to actually base the value of the widget on, I want you to base it off of how cool my extruder is, which is a piece of manufacturing equipment, right? You know, or look how, look how we batch and bend this stuff. I want you to buy the batch and bend, or I want you to pay for the widget based off of the value of the production of the widget. I don't value the production of the widget. I value the widget. All right. So then ultimately then what are people buying? Well, some people will say the product, Joe, is my attention. And in we, each one of these, we take a step in the right direction or at least a steps away from the wrong direction. They don't want to buy our time. They don't want to buy our, uh, our effort. And a lot of people go, well, then I'll sell my attention. And a lot of people in the room, I've heard people say that in conferences and the entire audience will go, oh, that's it. You know, Eureka, that's the moment. Now uh, I'm enlightened, Nirvana. And it sounds good. It really sounds good. But they don't value our attention. They do more than our effort and they do that more than our time. They want our attention. They're not going to pay for our attention. Because the way that we work within the constraints of time, the effort we exert, and we the attention, attention, I want to make sure I stress the A so you don't think I'm saying intention, right? Attention that we, that we exert are all means to an end. So what is the client buying? The client is buying outcomes. Outcomes not in the production of a financial statement. That's another means to an end. Like this is the crazy thing people have got to get. So listeners, please even catch this one. They're not even buying the outcomes of your financial analytics. Because everybody thinks that if I provide financial analytics, I've provided advisory. That's just another means to the end. And we're trying to sell the means instead of selling the end. Labor doesn't equal value. There's this great Ron Baker quote. He says, pearls are not valuable. Pearls are valuable, not because people dive for them, People dive for them because they're valuable. That's a quote out of Firm of the Future. And it's absolutely brilliant, right? So what's this intrinsic value that the effort is worth exerting to get to? What's the pearl that's worth the dive? Because I want to come back to keeping the metaphors going, keeping the comparisons going. The the guy, usually it's men, so I'm going to say the guys, historically, the guys that go down and dig for these pearls they, they, um, I'm not paying for how long they stayed underwater or how impressed I am that they could hold their breath, how many dives they had to take, 
nobody even thinks that people dive for pearls. Some some of you listening may go, oh, you dive for those three easy things? I, I just thought you wait for them to wash up on the shore and you got lucky. We don't even care. We want the pearl. All right, so now that I've teased it out so much, what is the outcome? You know, what is the pearl? And there is only one outcome the client is willing to pay for, and it comes in two different flavors. The outcome is an increase in my wealth. And the two flavors are a solve for my problem or how you make me feel. Because wealth is not necessarily financial. My wife wants to go see The Little Little Mermaid tomorrow. We're super excited about it. You know, it's one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. Now I get to see the live action version. It's The soundtrack's phenomenal. Um, so we're super excited about going to see The Little, Little Mermaid. But Disney's not selling me a movie. Not ultimately. I don't want to go see The Little Mermaid because, because I just want to watch a movie because I happen to want to watch a movie. I want to go see The Little Mermaid because I want the the way it's going to make me feel, right? I didn't quite grow up on it. I'm a little bit older than that, but I was in my early 20s, <laughs> like college age when that movie came out. And I've experienced it through my daughter's eyes, my nephew's eyes, Disney World so many times, right? It, it's, it's ingrained in Joe, and I know it will make me feel things, right? And it may even make me cry because I get weepy when it comes to things like that. So I'm paying, I'm, I'm paying money for a feeling, and the feeling that Disney generates is an increase in wealth for me. Why else would I exchange not just the money, that's the inconsequential part, but the three or four hours of my life getting there, getting back, and all that stuff. Um, so the other one is not, is not just how you make me feel, but how you solve my problem. You know, what's, what's interesting, Heather, is these two forces are so consistent, how you solve my problem and how you make me feel that even the illegal industries must bow to them. Uh, illegal drugs, how you make me feel. Um, executioner, how you solve my problem. You know, which I mean that for it to be a joke. But, but it's also a truth behind the joke, right? Um, the lawyer, after you've hired the executioner and done the drugs, how you solve my problem, right? But that's <laughs> the, the legal part after the illegal part. There's no, there's no exchange of wealth illegal or legal that doesn't bow to the two forces of feel and solution. So if I were just kind of put a bow in all of this thing, why, why are clients not valuing your services? Because you're selling your services. Stop selling your services and instead sell the outcome of your services. And and then I want to make sure I drive it home. The outcome of your services, people who aspire to be advisors, is not the financial analytics that might lead to their wealth. The outcome of your services is the wealth that you generate, however you get there. And I also want to say, if you're like, well, financial analytics, Joe, then that's never me. I, I, I've now tuned out and I'm focused on something else as I'm driving. Look, wealth generation may have absolutely nothing to do with complex financial analytics. You can generate wealth for a person by creating a budget for them and holding them to the budget. I had a conversation just this morning. I have a great conference producer, so I, I hate to out him on the podcast. He's absolutely amazing. But there was a budget. There was a tolerance. 
and there was a stretch on something and he thought it was important and I was challenging its importance and we came to a really good conversation in a meeting spot and in a single conversation due to budgetary controls, which we mutually adhered to in the meeting, I've saved $12,000 already this morning and I saved that $12,000 in 20 minutes. So we, we can increase our clients' wealth just by being budget curator, creators and gatekeepers of that. But what about bad debt expense mitigation? Just helping them clear that AR schedule, right? There are bookkeeping level functions that can be wealth generating in nature, and they're not that far from, from your reach. Now, a lot of people will say, well, well, Joe, then, but what about all the pricing pressures that go on? QuickBooks Live and Bench and Belay and Finance Pals, and you just name it, right? There are all these Walmarts of a bookkeeping, and then the tax preparers have had Liberty Tax for a long time, and HR Block and TurboTax Live. Can I really, can I really have my clients value services when everybody else in my industry is in a race to the bottom on price? And I and I and I actually gave you the punchline before I gave you the joke. Yes, because of what I just said. Accounts receivable management with bad debt expense mitigation budget creation and curation as just two examples of wealth generation that a bookkeeper can do. None of the companies I just mentioned do that work. Not one of them will do either of those, not to mention cash flow projections, any kind of financial interpretation at the, even the lightest level, fixed asset management. If you want to get into that, they do none of this kind of work. So let them be them. Pick a client that's larger because that's another reason your clients don't value you and your outcomes because their outcomes aren't wealth generating. Can a company that has $50,000 in sales have a 20-minute conversation and save $12,000? No. But can a company my size do it? Yes. And if you think that I'm a $100 million company, I'm not. I'm your ideal client profile. Seven figures, not eight figures in annual revenue run rate. Just that perfect size that if I didn't know how to do these things myself, I would need somebody like you listening in here today. North of a million, south of 10 million, and there are tons of us out there where a single conversation could make us a five-figure return. So stop selling your services, sell your outcomes, connect those outcomes intensely, intensely, to the wealth generation for the client. Remember that wealth is not always financial and it's always connected to how you make me feel or how you solve my problem. And then I've got one minute, so I'm going to tell a one minute story because the one minute story does talk about the power of relationship. No, they're not going to pay for your attention, but your effort and your and, and what you do within the constraints of time, uh, meaning your, your, your capacity and, and your, your work, and your um, effort do all add up to something and it's called a relationship and the relationship transcends the what we do and it even transcends ultimately the wealth we generate or at least it makes it contextualized so my wife and i went to paris many many years ago and my wife is fantastic. She's a world traveler as long as there are subtitles. 
I mean, even when I was in Italy last week, everything was was English and Italian. So what you navigate just fine. But you get to France and there aren't back then, there may be now, there were no English subtitles. Everything was just in French. And uh, so my wife was sitting in the train station. We just got off the train from London and she had this sort of froze moment. Like, okay, my maps don't light up with the signs. I don't know where to go. She's a processor. I'm like, okay, I got this, right? Because I'm more the visionary type. And it's like, I got this. I'm fluent. I figured it out. Um, so we found a little coffee shop. We sat down. It was the time of day. Nobody was in it. We were there all by ourselves. We're outside on the street in the little coffee shop. And the waiter came over and he said something in French. Because that's the other difference is they they lead out with English in Italy. Um, it said something in French. And my wife turned to him in her uh, charming East Tennessee accent uh, and said, uh, is there any chance you speak English? And he did, in a very strong French accent, reply in English. And my wife teared up. And she even gave him, like, uh, stood up and gave him a little hug, which he looked at me like, what, is this an American thing now? Is this new? Um, And she sat back down, and then she was fine. And the guy, this gets me back to the value part. We ordered a cup of coffee. My wife didn't even drink coffee. We sat there for about 20 minutes and I gave him the largest tip he would get all day, even on a whole meal because of how he made my wife feel, right? So so keep in mind that your clients feel like they're in France because they don't know the business of language, uh, the language of business. They don't know the language of business. They don't understand how to run a business. They, if you don't think you do, they understand it even less than you. They're scared. They're standing in the middle of their metaphorical train station and they're frozen. They may not look like it because they're masking it in the busyness of running their company, but it's there. And if you speak their language and you generate outcomes for them and you don't forget the not just solution part, but that you do have the power to make them feel the way they need to feel, comforted, peace of mind, protected. You have the ability to make them feel those things. They will start to value something more important than your services. They will value you. Heather, what are your thoughts on all that? I totally agree. Um, I think that it brings me back to a a story in my career where I was doing some bookkeeping for a First, for one client, and I remember finishing very quickly because I had gotten very efficient in my job. And uh, I'd only been there for a little while. And I remember getting up to leave, and she said, Can you stay? And I, I kind of stopped and looked at her a little funny and said, But I'm done with my work. And she said, Yes, but I like when you're here and I like the conversations that we have. And I think that is the big kind of a exclamation point on, on your point is that they do value that. And she wanted me to stay because of the way that I made her feel about her business. So, um, you know, another thing that, that, that I was thinking about, and this has come up actually a couple of times over the last few, few weeks, um, you know, I was at the accounting today conference and I had a conversation with someone about it. Um, and then I was at the ADP account council and this came up again is that a lot of us are accidental accountants. And what I mean by accidental accountants is that we, we have a skill set and personality traits that make us really good at 
getting through all the clutter, organizing things and being able to take information and make it, um, use it to make really sound decisions and to kind of highlight areas within a business. And the reason that most of us are, are accidental accountants, or a lot of us are, is because we're really good at the tasks. We're really good at the tasks. We're really good at the organization. We're really good at, you know, getting systems in place and, and you know, kind of clearing the clutter. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons that our industry has trouble moving into the realm of advisory and elevating themselves to thinking about the outcomes that they produce for their clients. Because we have been praised and celebrated for our technical abilities. Um, and we don't historically have talked about, you know, the impact that we have on the personal level. So one of the things that, that, that I always kind of recommend to other accountants and bookkeepers that, that when we have these type of conversations is if you're worried about what the value or the outcomes that you're producing for your clients and you're not sure, start to think about and start to document the, the wins that you have for your clients. An example of this is a couple of years ago with one of our clients, we, uh, you know, we had done consulting for them, technology consulting for them. And <clears throat> I had started our bookkeeping practice. And so I was talking to her about the bookkeeping practice. She was kind of on the fence for a while and decided, okay, let's do this. And she brought us on and we were doing the, you know, monthly close. We were doing, you know, real-time financials as far as getting the categorizations. And we took over her accounts payable. Well, the first day that we were doing the accounts payable, one of my team members uncovered that this particular client had been paying one of the largest suppliers uh, right away when they got an invoice and that they had two 10 net 30 terms and had not been taking the 2%. And so my team member calculated for that particular year how much of a discount that that client had not realized. It was $17,000. $17,000. Our engagement for the year was a little less than that. Um, but in day one, we had paid for her entire year of bookkeeping services. Um, and so our team, we, one of the things that we did is we wrote those things down and we actually shared them in a Slack channel with the entire team when we have those little wins, because we don't think about that. We think about, that's just our job, right? We find those things, but $17,000 is a lot of value, Joe, to bring to a client. Um, and so those are the things where you start to turn your mindset around when you can start to see the wealth that you're building for your clients through those little interactions, um, through the tasks that we're really good at because we're the accidental accountants, right? Um, and I think that that's something that I, I, I do throughout my life and it helps me to kind of ground myself and, and, and realize that, you know, I kind of do know what I'm talking about and I can take the relationship to the next level. Um, and I would tell all bookkeepers and accountants, you are doing advisory already. You're just not calling it that and you're not charging for it. And you're not charging um, for it. And you're right. not connecting what you're doing to the wealth you're generating, like what you were doing in your Slack channel to help them make that connection. Exactly. You got to make the connection. Absolutely. Well, I would love to keep going on this. And this is such a powerful topic that we could, we could go for three or four hours, but it is time to get to the um, TV movie quote segment. All right. So I'm going to lead out on this one. I was watching uh, the, the television show Foundation. And if you are even remotely a sci-fi fan, it's on Apple TV. 
and I don't say this lightly because I've seen the new Dune. I've read uh, Dune. I, you know, I'm just if it's science fiction, I have you know ingested it. Uh, it's it's in the top five things I've ever looked in my life. Okay, so beyond the endorsement for Foundation, one of the well produced uh, sci-fi movie, uh, TV shows of all time. There was a quote in it, which actually came from the book, and it says, to be alive is to know ghosts. We hear them whisper if we listen. Now, of course, they don't mean literal ghosts. This isn't a horror movie kind of thing. Ghosts in the metaphorical sense. But, you know, as I get older, um, the more ghosts I've accumulated, right? Uh, Because the more people, you know, I've outlived. Um, and, and I've still got one parent left, you know, my mom's 82, but beyond just the parental people that have gone on beyond you, cause that's what they mean by ghost or those that have, that are no longer with us. The people that have invested in our life at some chapter of our life who are no longer with us, where they used to speak to us. Now they only whisper. It's a powerful truth. And, and, and the application of the truth is a cautionary tale, the if you listen. Because when our mentors um, spoke to us, we did hear. Maybe we didn't always heed, but we heard. But we don't even hear their wisdom anymore unless we stop in this crazy, noisy world, shut all that noise off, and remember their wisdom. So my challenge to everybody listening is take the wisdom of that quote <laughs> and and stop uh, regularly and think about the people that were wise in your life, no longer with you, or no longer actively involved in your life. They could just be a chapter turn thing. You haven't talked to them in 20 years. I promise they're still whispering to you and their whispers will make all the difference. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. What about you? I love that. So mine is, um, <laughs> mine's interesting. It's, uh, I, I was drawn to this quote. So mine is from Game of Thrones. And uh, the quote um, that, the quote that I found, and now I can't find it, um, was uh, from at, uh, a conversation that um, Varys and Baelish are having about the power hierarchy within the realm, right? And so the quote that he has is, um, you know, Peter Baelish, whose little finger says, chaos isn't a pit. So they were talking about how chaos within power is, is, is a pit. And when you get caught up in it, what Varys was saying, when you get caught up in it, it can, it's a liability, right? Um, and what Peter Baelish was saying was, it's actually chaos is a ladder. And so what he meant by that was somebody else's chaos, there's opportunity. So where I kind of went with this was right now, and, and, and we have been for a while, our industry is in this incredible time of disruption with AI and new technology. And so there's two ways to look at it. One way to look at it is, you know, it is chaotic, it's disruptive. Um, and, you know, that's something that we can be afraid of, or we could take the stance that Peter Baelish takes, which is there's an opportunity there, right? That there's an opportunity for us to, you know, step up to the plate, to embrace it, to learn about it, to become informed about it and, and, and use it to help others within our community and help ourselves to make the most of it. 
So I think that's true. When you see chaos, when you see things that maybe aren't ideal, look for how can you make it better? How can you make it easier for yourself, for your clients, for the industry? And how can you make so it an my opportunity? Challenge is, and it is absolutely an opportunity. Yeah, it yes, becomes an, a powerful sure. opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So now books. And yes. uh, I believe you're bringing the book this week to us. What have you read recently that excited you? So this book has got me so incredibly excited. Um, Joe, you know that I did my master's degree at Northeastern in innovation. And so I am fascinated by innovation and how people come up with new ideas. Um, There's a book that I found. It actually was just released last month um, by a a scholar named Michael Luruk, who's also a consultant. And he is an expert on design thinking and innovation. And what I loved about this book um, was it hits on all the principles of design thinking, which, you know, if you if you haven't studied design thinking, it, it is a very customer centric uh, methodology to innovation and, and really creating a company. So you focus on the needs of your clients or your customers, and that that really drives everything you do. So. He talks about the principles of design thinking and the way he does it in his book is really engaging because there's, of course, the written word, but he's also included visual cartoons and um, lots of, you know, really engaging and lovely um, graphics within the book that, that helps you to solidify these topics that may be a little hard to kind of digest. And I just found it incredibly um you know, real, well-written and easy to understand. And it really, you know, some of the new ideas that I hadn't heard before um, were wonderful. And he talks about building within an organization to innovate what he calls the team of teams. And what it is, is it's a, a, a methodology that he talks about as creating a T-shape where you have multidisciplinary teams, right? And the multidisciplinary teams are teams where you're bringing people together from different areas of the organization and then you create interdisciplinary teams where you're bringing the experts to the table and you create a T-shape that basically creates the synergy of the experts, you know, that are talking about what are the, you know, what are the, the big, as you say, Joe, the big boulders, like the big things that an expert needs to know to move the organization forward. And then at the top, you have the multidisciplinary teams, which are the groups, different members within the organization that see different areas of the business that can provide feedback and um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and relate to how the, t- the innovations that are being talked about relate to each part within the organization. Cause everybody has a different perception based on the job that they're doing. And when you bring these two dynamics together, you create a team of teams that is working towards the vision, mission, purpose of the organization from all angles while relying on the expertise and the creativity of the entire organization. So it's just It's like formalizing and engineering intentionality, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah. And he really lays is. it out. I, the book, he lays out the, the roadmap for doing this within an organization. And so I was just fascinated by it. Um, a couple of big takeaways um, that I had was, you know, he said, don't rely, you know, he talks a lot about metrics too. How do you measure this stuff? How do you measure innovation? right? Their ideas, right? And so he says a lot of companies, the big, you know, mistake is that they they focus on the, what he calls vanity metrics, which are like, how many great, great ideas did our team have? Well, that doesn't really matter. We can have lots of ideas, but how many of these ideas actually become a product that is successful, right? Or how many ideas actually make it to the, um, the activation stage and then not just the ideation stage. 
Um, so it's, you know, his big takeaway is stay customer centric. That's the whole design thinking ideology. Create these teams of teams to make sure that you're not siloing all of the creativity and the ideas in one area and you're missing out on the feedback of the other you know, departments and, and people within your organization. And he talks a lot about how to create a culture of innovation within an organization. So I thought this was really, you know, an excellent book, a really great read, lots of, lots of actionable, um, downloadable worksheets and, and things that you can use in your practice. I think for accounting firms, let's get this book and start doing this because I think that, you know, with accounting firms, our, we tend to have our different departments, like our tax department, our cash department, our, you know, audit siloed. And if what, what would happen if we brought, if we created that T-shape with the experts and then the different departments coming together to solve customer client problems? I just feel like that's would be super impactful. Yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. Now, if, um, if this would just be for then firms that are multi-practitioner or are the applications for the sole practitioner or a very small firm? So, you know, that's interesting, Joe. That's a great question. Um, I think, I mean, it really is based on creating a team. I think definitely there's takeaways. Um, I think that you could also, as an advisor to your clients, benefit from reading this book because you're dealing with clients that have teams. But he is focusing on innovation within an organization. I'm not going to say there aren't takeaways for a solo practitioner. But I'm going to say that, you know, really his methodology is meant for, you know, more than one, one. But yet uh, it's another one of these wealth generating, you know, outcomes we can drive to kind of tie back to the first part of this. You know, we have clients that need this, even if we don't. Mm -hmm. Right. But I know many of our listeners need it, too. They're large enough organizations. Um, All right. Time to social posts. Um, I'm going to lead out. and I'm going to cheat. Because I was at Expensicon. And David Barrett said something I thought was particularly profound in his opening keynote. He said, he said, every check is a conversation because that was his context is always a disbursement, like, you know, an employee check or a paycheck or um, reimbursement check or whatever it may be. Um, Vendor payment, because they also have accounts payable. But um, I'm going to broaden it a little bit. And I'm going to, I'm going to broaden his quote to say, this is the cheat number one is I'm going to broaden his quote. Uh, while keeping the same spirit of it and say every transaction is a conversation Um, because that's also true in the larger context. A financial transaction, I learned this in Accounting 101, and though I can't remember the definition verbatim, it always had something to do with a a financial exchange between two parties, right? So something like that in in my textbook. So if if I'm having a financial exchange between party A and party B, I'm having some kind of a conversation about it. It may be a passive one, it may be, you know, the echoes of one we had to spin up something that's recurring, or it may be a pending one. But the whole thing in a wrapper is contextualized inside of a relationship, and the relationship is executed through conversations. So the quote is: "Every transaction is a conversation." Um, and the reason the second cheat is not only did I change the wording a bit, but he didn't tweet it, but it was tweeted so many times after he said it <laughs> that it still counts as my favorite tweet. Or, you know, multiple tweets. Um, Okay, so Heather, what's yours? So I have one from Alex Reitenberg, CPA, and he had tweeted out, and I just, it caught my attention. I don't know that it's a favorite tweet, but I thought it was an impactful tweet. Um, So he said, 
an ex-client in February. So he's not working with this client anymore. It says, great working with you, but we don't see the value in working with you, right? This happens to us where it's usually over fees, right? We found it cheaper somewhere else. So me in February, if anything changes, feel free to reach out, right? Feel free to reach out. I'm here if you need me. I know my value. So ex-client today, our new accountant doesn't understand ISOs or NSOs. Would you be able to explain it to him today? <laughs> <laughs> And obviously, See, this is classic. Uh, it's, classic, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, my takeaway obviously is, you know, we tend to focus on deliverables. As you mentioned, Joe, the financial statement is not the value we're bringing to the clients. It's our expertise, it's our knowledge, and it's, you know, it's, it's the conversations that we're having and the feeling that we're bringing to the client. And that's a perfect example. And, you know, Alex gets it. The client still doesn't get it. And so this, as you said, with conversations would be a great conversation to have with that. Well, the, yeah, uh, being able to navigate ISOs and NSOs is one of the outcomes Alex was driving. And now they, yeah, totally. they just took it for granted. They just thought it they magically did. happened, right? They did. Um, and now all of a sudden that outcome's gone and, hey, we value you again. So yeah. um, now, and I don't know anything about Alex or the situation, so I'll say this in a textbook sense, not anything about Alex's tweet. In general, I'll make a general comment. Um, the connection of what we're doing to constant reinforcement to the outcome we're driving is essential. Or they will think it all just happens magically. And then they'll be shocked when exactly everybody's right. not a magician. Um, so, so keep connecting the outcomes you're driving to the actual outcomes they see. Stay in their mind about it. Um, and it, it can almost get comical the way you do it. If I'm doing coaching sessions with, with accounting firms, I'll do it on a call. So it sounds like this call made you $2,000. I'm glad because we work on a pricing problem or something like that. And it's amazing how we could work on the pricing problem. We could generate the $2,000. And if I don't say the words. Right. It's human nature just to go, well, it was all part of some ethereal thing that included Joe, right? Yeah. Um, keep reinforcing. All right. And the final thing we do, it's one of my favorite ones to sign off on. You're the senior editor of the Woodard Report. You like to pick your favorite article every single uh, or within the last week or so uh, since our last recording. So by which one are you bringing in today? So there's actually an incredible article that I got. I got from Leslie Leonda's CPA. Um, she writes a lot of uh, great content for the Woodard Report. And she um, recently had a medical um, situation in her life that has basically taken her out of her practice for a bit. And so she's writing amazing content while she's taking that, while she's recovering. But I, first of all, I was just incredibly grateful for her, you know, being that vulnerable and sharing her experience with the world and with our community. I think that's incredibly brave and amazing and just kind of speaks to her generosity and how much she cares about all of us. So thank you, Leslie. Um, but her article was about how she had put processes within her firm in place so that when this came up, she didn't need to be in her firm and how amazing it was to her to know that her firm was going to run really well without her to see her team members empowered to be able to run the practice without her so that she could focus on healing. And so there's some really great takeaways 
uh, in her article, which is preparing your business to run without you, a personal perspective is the title of it, um, that I think would benefit all of us to be thinking about what happens when the unexpected happens, like how, how are you going to be able to handle that? And do you have the thing, you know, the, the structure in place to keep your clients served, uh, keep your business running. And, and, and the biggest takeaway for her was her team increased her revenues while she was, while she's been on medical leave. That and is so fantastic. She, See that, right? that, yeah, that's yeah, scale and the ability to run without you are two key key measurements of a, of a well-designed business. Heather, this has been an amazing episode. I so enjoy the ones where you and I just get to talk to each other, but I, you know, Absolutely. I like talking to other people too, but these are lots of fun. Um, and whenever these come around again, I'll get to talk to you and everybody else will get to join us. So we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.